We're going to talk today on relapse. It's something I know a lot about. Um, I've been in program for six years. Oh, I'm a compulsive overeater and a codependent too. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, I've been in program for six years in the OA program for that time. And um, to give you a little background, I'll I'll talk to you about. Um, my childhood, my, my growing up, so you understand why I'm in two programs. I'm going to keep an eye on the time. Um, I was, uh, my father was a railroad engineer, and uh, I was born in a little town in Maryland, in Hagerstown, Maryland, if anybody's ever heard of that. And my father and mother had two little girls. My mother had a nervous breakdown before I was born, so they were really ready for me. And um, I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. I didn't know that it was dysfunctional until just a few years ago when I started facing that fact. My father died when I was five years old. And as far as weight goes, I never had a problem with it until I was in my early 20s. In growing up, I was um, sexually molested by three family members, and I denied it and ignored it and never told a single soul in my whole life until just a few years ago. And so growing up, I had um, a lot of stress, a lot of anger and resentment, a lot of um, things that happened to me that to this day I cannot remember. So I am trying to go back and do a lot of um, research. Some of it is, is very hard to, all of it's hard to do because um, nobody wants to talk about it. And you find that happening a lot in families that are dysfunctional. When I was five, my father died and so my mother raised us, which was really sad that I was stuck with a mother like I am. She was raised by an alcoholic father that was very abusive. So she was codependent also. And we learned all of those traits from her. I know it sounds like I'm blaming her a lot. Believe it or not, I'm, I'm trying not to. I'm trying to just give the facts. Um, when I was nine or 10 years old, somewhere around there, my mother remarried. And my stepfather was a perfectionist especially with cleaning. And he was, he, he never would praise us for anything. Uh, it was always, why couldn't you do this? Um, and this is the way you should do it. And my mother was like that too. She'd always say, well, that's great, honey. That's really good. But you could have done it this way. So I was raised in that environment. Um, I was scared to death of my mother. She was, um, the home environment was very volatile. You'd never know when you walked in the door or when she walked in the door whether it was going to be a good day or a bad day. And it was always based on her temperament and how she was feeling that day, um, especially with the bad marriage between my mother and stepfather. At first, in the early years of their marriage, I longed for him to come home from work because my mother would get home first and she would rant and rave at us. And when he would come home, she was calm and nice and sweet as could be. And so I longed for him to come home because then everything would be just fine. But then after a few years, that wore off. And uh, she no longer tried to put up the pretense. And as far as pretense goes, I was also raised that appearances are everything. My mother is a very social conscious person. She raised us very strictly in the sense that we should all be ladies. She taught us how to walk correctly, how to speak, how to um, eat correctly. We would practice at home so that if we ever came into, um, well, she, she taught us to gave us the message that we should marry money. That would be the best thing to do. Well, we all disappointed her. None of us did. 
but we're all happy in our marriages, and that's what counts. There are a lot of messages that I got in growing up that I've learned are wrong. Um, as I started to say, she was raising us how to, to walk correctly. It was not an uncommon thing in our household to practice walking with books on our heads because that's the way you learn how to walk correctly. Um, we would, um, I, I remember some of the things she said about men. This is another mixed message. Uh, things like men are no good, they only use you for one thing. And she didn't always come right out and say that, but the message was always there. And now I've learned that men are wonderful. There are a lot of great men in OA, and that's how I've learned to appreciate men through men in OA, because I've never trusted them. And there's still a degree of distrust, and it's taking time to work through that. But I'm getting there. Um, in growing up, I had only one desire in my life, and that was to grow up. I hated being a child. It was the worst thing in my life. My life was filled with fear of both my stepfather and my mother, and it was filled with an, uh, raging anger that I suppressed. And everything will eventually come out someday in one way or another. And the way it came out in me was through a disease called colitis. It's a very painful disease, and once you have it, that's it. You have it. It doesn't just go away. I'm in remission right now from it. It's nothing fatal. I imagine if it got real severe, it could be. But I had, this is, when I was in OA and learning the OA program, it helped me a lot because of the serenity in the program. And I got my feet under control. And I'm going to skip around a little bit this morning because I keep thinking of things. But as I was in the OA program, I was still having occasional colitis attacks until they got to a point where I was having several a week. And I, through a lot of things that were occurring, I began to come out of what's called denial, where I realized that there were things from my childhood I had to put at rest and I had to deal with once and for all. I didn't even know um, this was something I had to do. It just kind of creeped up on me. So um, I started going to meetings called Adult Children of Alcoholics, which is another 12-step program. And I found out some things about myself. I found out that I'm a victim of circumstances and I'm a survivor. I found out that um, I don't have to be embarrassed about what happened to me. And I went home from my first ACA meeting. And I'll never forget, I was so tired. I was totally drained and exhausted. And uh, my program had, my OA program had been going haywire because all these emotions are flooding into me and out of me. And uh, my colon was going crazy. And I came home from ACA and I was laying on the bed upstairs because that's my hiding place. That's where I hid as a child. And whenever I'm disturbed or bothered about something, I go to my bedroom and shut the door. My husband came home from work, and he knew something was wrong because I'm laying in bed. And he came up, and I'm crying. And I told, and crying is, is not easy for me. That's, that's another thing. Privately, okay, but I don't really care about it too much. And he put his arms around me, and I just, told him everything. All the, we had been married for about 11 or 12 years at that time, and he had never known what kind of a childhood I had. He never knew about the molestation. So I told him that day, and it was very hard because, you see, when we were first married, he asked me to make a promise to him. And I said, what, honey? And he said, promise me that we'll never have any secrets. I said, okay. And deep inside, I'm thinking, I hope I never have to tell him, you know, all these little things. So it was very hard for me, and I thought, he's going to hate me because I kept all these secrets from him. But he didn't. He loved me more. 
and he put his arms around me and he said, honey, that's okay, I understand. He says, my life hasn't been as perfect as what you think. And he shared some personal things with me. But um, it's grown from there and he has helped me so much. The next year was really rough because I had all these emotional issues I was dealing with and I didn't know how to deal with them. I was going nuts inside. My OA program was the pit. I wasn't working it. I had stopped going to meetings frequently and I decided I'm going to have to do something. The pain is so severe. So I chose to start going to Adult Children of Alcoholics. I figured, well, it's a 12-step program, so um, I'll just try to work through this. And I chose to concentrate on my ACA program at the expense of my OA program. Now as I look back on it, I see that was a mistake. I went into a relapse. I not only put on the 36 pounds I had lost initially six years ago, but I put on 20 pounds over that. Um, I hadn't had um, the serenity of abstinence for a year. And, and you know what they say about abstinence, once you lose it, it's hard to get it back. For me, it was even harder to get it back, harder than I ever expected. And for a year, I struggled trying to re regain that abstinence. And during that time, I was going to ACA, learning about myself. Um, and also, I started going into counseling. And that helped me tremendously. I now don't blame my mother. I realize she's a victim of her childhood. I hold her accountable for some things, and I'm not completely healed of that relationship. But at least I don't blame her anymore. I realize that I had some choices that I made. They were wrong choices as a child, but I made choices that were not so good and that contributed to the reason I'm having so many scars and difficulties today. So about in uh, December, Janu January, I decided I couldn't stand living without my abstinence anymore. That was just as painful to me as the emotional pain and trauma I was going through. So I decided to um, come, come back full force into, a into OA go to meetings frequently instead of infrequently. Um, I chose a group that I had never gone to before where nobody would know me and where I could start fresh because for me that's good. Uh, that I knew that would work for me. So I started going to the Inglewood group. They had a lot of recovery and I'd heard about the reputation. So I started going and regained my abstinence almost immediately found a good sponsor and I am continuing today to work both programs and I can do it because of my abstinence and because of I appreciate my abstinence in a way that I never had before I've been up and down over the years I think we all have difficulties at times like Kay said earlier there are white knuckle days but this time it is different I can really say it's different because I have a supreme respect for my abstinence. I'm scared to death, almost to the point of paranoia, where I'm afraid I'm going to lose my abstinence. And I couldn't go for another year, and probably this time it would be two years, without having that abstinence again. Um, between the counseling and the, uh, the code of meetings that I go to, Codependence Anonymous, and my OA program, I am learning more about myself. I've started having flashbacks and some memory, um, familiar things come to my mind. I've had one visual flashback, and it's not easy to go through. It's really hard. And uh, there are some times when I just don't want to remember anymore because the memories that I'm having, some of them are okay and other ones are shocking literally shocking but I can remember a prayer that I prayed to my higher power years ago and if anybody's familiar with the Bible Proverbs 31 talks about the uh, 
this particular woman, and I call her the Proverbs 31 lady, and I desire that above anything else to be that woman, that type of woman. And so I can remember years ago praying to become like her. And it's funny how these things come back to you. You know, you pray them and you forget and you think, well, it never happened and you kind of forget it. But he doesn't forget. My higher power doesn't. And I can see where he's making a more complete person out of me. And it involves going through the pain of growth because it definitely is not easy. Growth is painful. Um, but I appreciate the fact that uh, he is only bringing to my mind what I can handle. I have a plaque that's in my kitchen that I got as a gift one day for Christmas from a friend. And it says, um, Lord, help me to remember that nothing is going to happen to me today that you and I together can't handle. And I really believe that with all my heart. Uh, spiritually speaking, uh, the last two years has been not so easy because I went through a period of heavy doubting and not trusting with a warped father figure that I had, none at first, and then having the stepfather that I had. It's not easy to trust men, and God is a male figure to me. So I, with that, in addition to the fact that a friend died that was believing in her healing, I was really went through a rough time of wondering, you know, what good is our faith? But I'm coming back around to that now, and I can see that there are some things I'm not going to have an answer to that I'm just going to have to wait for and trust, and trust is a big thing for me, as it is for a lot of you. But I am um, uh, going to make it, and I have a lot of friends in LA, and I just love this marathon. I am having such a good time, and I'm seeing people here that I haven't seen for years, and it's, it's such a treat. It really is. Uh, last year, I was embarrassed about coming back to LA because I had gained so much weight and a pride that is in us. You know, I, I just couldn't stand the thought of somebody seeing me this heavy. And you just get to a point where you swallow your pride and you think, I can't live like this. I don't care what people think. I care what I think. And I'm miserable the way I am, so I'm going to go back. And I'm glad I did. I really am because it, um, it, it makes it easier for other people that are in the same boat, for one thing. Um, I can remember seeing some people coming back their way that had been ab um, absent for a while. And almost a little relieved that they had gained a little weight because I thought, oh, they're not perfect, so I don't have to have so much pressure on them. But, um, it's a wonderful fellowship that we have, and I'm 12 steps through and through, from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, and I, um, I feel more at home here than I do in my own church group around Christian people, because I don't think they really understand me. Um, they don't want to hear, I'm not okay today. They don't want to hear... Um, I'm really having trouble dealing with my childhood. I have some memories that are flooding back and I don't know how to handle them. But you guys understand and you accept me for the way I am and I appreciate that very much. Um, I haven't had any contact with my mother in about a year and a half. I haven't kept track. It might even be two years, but I don't think so. I, I've had a little contact of my own choosing. I'm a very controlling person, and I would even control the telephone conversations and steer the conversation away from things that I didn't like. I have not let her in on the private things of my life, but I have my sisters. Uh, my mother doesn't know that um, I am involved in uh, volunteer work with a substance abuse group. Oh, that's another thing. I thought I grew up in a non-chemical, addictive family. 
and it has been brought to my attention <laughs> the last couple years, in the last year, that my mother has been hooked on drugs since I was a little girl. I can always remember two medicine chests. I can remember the medicine chest for the family, and then I can remember a cupboard crammed with medicines for her. And she'd be popping pills all day long, and I thought that was normal. Um, and then a nurse and a doctor confirmed in, in Florida that she is addicted to these um, prescription drugs, and she needs to get off of them because she's going to die if she doesn't. She is presently going to a doctor who's giving her these, and he's been through rehab twice himself. And he's got a reputation for hooking his patients on this. But she is so sick in her mind that she thinks this is normal. And this is abnormal behavior for my mother because years ago, it would have been socially unacceptable for her to even be linked in any way with this person. So um, now if I look back, I can understand some things. I can understand why I feel the way I do about drugs. I am a, a zealot when it comes to drug abuse. Uh, I'm involved very heavily in the Kettering community in a substance abuse community group, community action group called IMPACT. I never realized for years why I never um, wanted to take medicine. I'd have to be practically dying to take medicine. If I got a headache, my husband would say, honey, go take an aspirin, go take this. And I, I wouldn't take it, you know, and I never could understand why. All I knew was that I just couldn't stand the thought of taking drugs. If it got really bad, I would. And now I realize that it's because of the role model I saw I didn't like. So I decided to go to the other extreme, and now I'm trying to find my way back to the middle. There is a middle ground, and I've got to find out where that is. But I can't do it alone. I'm doing it with the help of a counselor who um, is very gentle and very kind and helpful to me. So as far as relapse goes, all I can say is that it's taught me a lesson. I can't guarantee today that I'm not going to relapse again. I'd be a fool if I did. All I can do is, is live one day at a time and to believe in my abstinence and try the best that I can and keep coming to meetings. I can see little warning signals going off and they're my little things that happen to me, negative things are my warning signals, like if I am not making the calls, if I can't make meetings, I should be making calls. And because of my volunteer work, I can't always make the meetings right now because we're really heavy into a work, getting a workshop together for caring. So I need to make the phone calls. If I don't make the phone calls, I'm not getting the meetings. And I start going downhill, and I can tell when I am. Also, if I start reading a lot or sleeping a lot, that's another warning signal. I know something's wrong and I'm not dealing with it. I have stuffed my feelings for so many years and, and don't know I'm troubled about something until my colon starts going into spasm, or I get a really severe stomach ache, which is precedes a colon attack for me. So I have to start writing more, which I hate to do, and I have to um, get those feelings out, which is very hard to do. But I'm learning to do all these things. I have to survive. I have to. And it has been a real pleasure to be here today. I want to thank you all for coming because it's, it's uh, great for me. I need the help and I need the encouragement and uh, I love you all. Really do. I'm not just saying that. I really do. And thank you so much. <laughs>
but it sure was hard to talk about. And there were three other people. It was a panel of speakers, and we talked about relapse, and uh, it was very difficult for them, too. <coughs> I've been a, a member of Overeaters Anonymous for about eight and a half years. I've, uh, I came in the program around 450 pounds. I was, I was very, very sick, and I, I'm just going to, I have to read this. I cannot remember how bad I was uh, physically, mentally gone, but physically. I was diabetic. I couldn't walk 50 yards. My blood pressure was totally out of control, couldn't be, even be controlled with medicine. I had a, a irregular heartbeat that would meet six, would miss six or seven times at a throw. Doctors figured it would stop any time. They just, I slept in a chair rather than a bed. I feel a lot of feedback on this bed. Is there? No, it's not. You know? Feedback? Okay, I, I'm getting it from here somewhere or other, maybe from the microphone. Okay. Uh, I, ate, I ate continuously. I have no idea how many calories I was eating, but within a period of uh, less than two years, I gained 200 pounds. Uh, I ate so much that before I'd go to bed at night, if I laid down, I would, I would just aspirate and it would come back up all over me and through everything. So I know a little bit about what the bulimics go through and how the stuff eats the, uh, the enamel off the teeth and how, how it hurts. It just hurts. It really is. I see a few people shaking their heads. It's painful, terribly painful. So I do understand that a little bit. Uh, Eighteen months before I came into the program, I never went to any type of social function. I had retired, and I thought I had the world by the tail end, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I had a, a beautiful boat up on Lake Huron. I had snowmobiles in the garage, and uh, just just thought I had everything made. Retired at 45, and no problem. Just play, play, play. Never worked. Uh, I would go by the boat and look at it once in a while, sitting in the water, and uh, yeah, it's still there, and, and move on. I just didn't feel like getting on it. And, just about as sick as a person could get, I think. That's the middle part of it. Uh, I was so big that I, I couldn't sit in a car without having the seats pushed back. Uh, so I bought a pickup truck, one of the kinds with a crew cab where you could, I could get in and out, and that's what I drove all the time. I was so hooked on pills at this time that every night for and even after that, I could not go to bed without taking a couple sleeping pills, three or four Valiums. My morning started off with some kind of uppers, and uh, I lived that way for 12 years. And I didn't function too badly. I think people can learn how to live with pills a whole lot easier than the alcohol. Maybe it doesn't smell on their breath. Maybe I didn't go as far. But I was able to work and function for that 12 years, and, and probably was some of the best times of my life was for being employable. Because before that, my alcoholism, uh, as some of you know who are alcoholics, you just end up going from job to job. And in the early stages, you kind of fall up into better jobs because most of us that are alcoholics are also compulsive, compulsive workers. But there is a stage when you start falling down too and you go back down to the gutter. Uh, I had a heart attack when I was 32 years old. and. Uh, stress-related job. I was manager of a large dealership in Detroit, uh, automobile dealership, working 70, 80 hours a week, which is, I think, kind of typical for alcoholics when they're, you get all your self-worth self -worth out of your job, and that's exactly the way I run. However, with the money I made, it was probably my wife who supported us for all that time. Because my money I made just went for booze or toys or something like that, and big boy toys, too, I'm talking about. So she probably supported us for all that time. Well, I know she did. I was hurt in the service. And while I'm sitting on this stool, I have a real problem with my legs. In the joints of my knees, they have been off more than a half an inch. The bone is down. I walk bone on bone. And any time I get up, uh, I probably, and I, I would qualify this, but probably experience more pain in one day than most people experience in a lifetime. And they won't put new ones in because I'm too damn big. And uh, I don't know 
that I'll ever be able to get down. I hope so. I hope this program will get me there. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The program is good to me. I came in uh, within a couple of years. I took 200 pounds off and got on what we call the speaker circuit and spoke all over the country and invited to a lot of conventions, keynote speakers. I did a lot of service, uh, most of the time for the right reason, uh, sometimes out of ego, I think, no doubt. I do a lot of things out of ego. Uh, I keep trying to knock my ego down, but boy, it's got great recruitative powers. It just keeps popping right back up again. That's one of the reasons why <coughs> I've always been kind of reluctant to speak at marathons and stuff around my home. Uh, in 1985, I feel like my program is probably in the best shape it's ever been. Uh, I belong to a prayer group. Uh, I was reading the Bible on a daily basis and still do. I've never given that up, even in the relapse part of it. But I got myself well enough that I was no longer a diabetic. My blood pressure, I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, my heart was beating regular. Uh, I had got myself up after uh, a couple operations where I could walk about three miles and uh, weight was not goal weight, but it was a good weight. I felt good. And I decided to go back to work. And it worked real well for about 15 months. Uh, the only problem was I worked split shift, split schedule, and I know a lot of people do that. It's very difficult to work your program. And some of you who do that are aware of that because you never know what weekends you're going to have off. I worked weekends, I worked nights. Uh, what I found was that I no longer had a home meeting, that I became a drop-in aware. And to me, that is a killer. That is probably the biggest mistake anybody can ever make in relapse or in program is not to have a home meeting. It's an absolute necessity as far as I'm concerned. I see Jim shaking his head back there. Anyway, Jim Silver here, there are other out-of-town experts, right? No, 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 no. I'm interested to say that. Sure is good to see you guys, too. Uh, and yeah, there you go. Right on. Jim and Sylvia lived here for several years and worked really hard, a lot of service, a lot of program, made a lot of friends, and they, the job took him to another city, Columbus, I guess that's right to say that. And we really appreciate seeing them from time to time. We miss them. Uh, it's a drop-in meeting. If you don't belong to a meeting, if, if you don't feel like that you belong to the best OA meeting in this city, you're in trouble when you go to your meeting. If you're not getting your cup filled at your meeting, you're in trouble. And the reason I first heard this, I'd only been in the program about a year, and I was at a, at a convention in, in, uh, in Chicago. The guy there called Big Book Ben, and I bought a set of these tapes, spoke on the tapes. 25 years in program and uh, was also a, a person that they asked to speak around all the country. And he impressed me with most of the things that he said, obviously all the things he said. And that was the one thing that, that I heard then. You have to have a home meeting. You have to belong to the what you think is the best meeting in town or you won't make it in this program. I don't know if anybody else feels that way or not, but he said that, and I'm just quoting him. I feel that way. And, and drop-in meetings, you don't have that closeness. You don't have that feeling. You do not get your cup filled. You do not do any service because you don't have to lead the meetings. You don't know if you're going to be there. You can come in late. You don't have to listen to the first part of the rhetoric or ritual in our program. You, you've heard that a thousand times anyway, so you have a tendency to drop in at the break. You know, here I am, guys. Yeah. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Uh, and then it even got worse off, as far as I was concerned. But, uh, I took a job, and I heard Judy Hollis was the first one that, that said this. And she said one time she was offered a job, a really a super job, but she knew if she took it, she gained 100 pounds. Now, Judy Hollis is the therapist from, uh, psychologist from California that speaks in our area, Muslim, has wrote, written several books that a lot of you know her. I don't I'll tell you who she is. But when I heard that, I said, oh, boy, that's what I've done. I took a job that I gained weight on. And the first 15 months was all right. I think I put 10, possibly 15 pounds back on. 
But the next 18 months of that job, I got myself in such pain, and I told you about the legs, okay? They put in a new office that required, I, I sold RVs, okay? Uh, and I, I enjoyed it. I, I made a lot of money at it. It was, it was, a, it was a big uh, thing for me after being retired for several years to have a job that you could go back, that you could function again. That, you know, that, I don't know how to explain that other than I really got a lot of self-worth out of it. I felt like I was contributing again to the world. And oh, he got me there, and that was okay. But that last 18 months, I put in an office that overlooked a big lot, and you had to climb about six or eight stairs to get into this office, because so you can see, before we'd been down on ground level. So about 30, 40 times a day, I had to go up and down those stairs, and it almost destroyed me. Had I have been smart, which I'm not, that's not true. I'm very smart. I'm just too dumb to recognize things sometimes. Right. You know, what I was saying is nobody's too dumb to work this program, but there's an awful lot of us too smart. I, I know that's true. That's very true. Anyway, for the love of money, for the love of self-worth, or whatever, I just about killed myself over the next 18 months. I put, uh, all together, I would say 60 pounds back on over that 18 months plus the other 15 that I'd put on the first 15 months. And uh, I knew I was out of control, and I knew I was in relapse. Uh, a lot of people I've heard say they don't realize when they're in relapse, but I knew I was. But I also knew I was doing a lot of good things, too. Uh, I was helping people where I could. Uh, I was still meeting with my prayer groups on a, on a regular basis. I prayed and med meditated every morning. I kept a daily journal. Uh, a lot of discipline in my life, except for one thing. I would get into so much pain when I would talk to a customer that I did not feel it. And when they would go away, or after the sale was made or whatever, I felt the pain. Immediately I would run for the candy machines. That was my painkiller. And it is a painkiller. Sugar will kill pain. Uh, not only mentally, but it physically will. It releases endorphins and it is a painkiller. I also got hit into the drugs again, uh, prescription drugs, but I was taking double what I was supposed to take at the end, and that will wear you down also. Uh, denial, no doubt about that, knew I was in trouble, asked to, asked to quit and to retire about four months before I did, and they, oh, please stay, we need you, you know, take us through the get us through the summer, we don't want to hire another person, you know. And I said, okay, okay. And I wasn't working that hard. I was letting other people take a lot of my turns even whenever the other salesmen because, but even so, I was still earning good money. So if you do in the summertime anyway, that's the time when you earn a lot of money in that business. And I guess I just couldn't walk away from it. Well, the damn near killed me. Uh, after I quit, I looked around, and there's one thing. I think there are as many types of relapses as there are abstinence as there are people in our program. I don't think anybody uh, really loses for the same thing. I, uh, Carrie, I, I appreciate that uh, as my understanding of what you said, you kind of got some involved in another program that you kind of let your OA program slip. And I, I know that's happened to a lot of people here. Uh, the one thing that I did not do only there's two things. Let me back up a little bit. My, I've had four sponsors since I've been in the program. The first two I had went back out there and are out there eating and are 100 pounds overweight. Uh, one of them is successful. He's an alcoholic and working his AA program fine. He cannot work this program. And I've seen that happen many times. AAers come over here and try to work it, get the weight off, and it, it's tough. And I guarantee you, being an alcoholic and an addict, that keeping weight off is much harder than quitting drinking. And most alcoholics who really think about it will agree with you because they can put that bottle away and lock it up. We have to deal with food three times a day or whatever your abstinence is. It's always there. It's always in front of us. Uh, we learn that food is good. Food is okay. Food is love. We've been taught that from the very beginning, ever since we were this big. So it, it's a much more difficult thing to, to handle. I realize that. Uh, second sponsor just left the program after being chairman of the region and just doing a lot of things 
And the last time I talked to him, he was 100 pounds overweight. Third sponsor, and this is where I got in a little bit of trouble. One of the things that I did wrong, and that's what I'm trying to tell you, things that I did wrong that got me into relapse. Uh, my sponsor died, I don't know, about eight months ago or something like that. He, he had bone cancer and he died. We knew he was dying. <coughs> Beautiful man, 25 years, May 8th. <coughs> and he never gave him tough love either. Uh, nobody said that this morning, Kate. But he knew what I needed when I needed it, but he sure had a way of doing it. Like if, if I, he was very, his wife was very active in, in OA and, and Al-Anon, and, and we had a kind of a social-type relationship going, too, which, which was very good. Went to a lot of meetings, conventions, and things like that together. We, we really enjoyed each other's company. But to show you how time and program will probably work a whole lot more than just when we're coming in, we're all enthused, and, and we need that, don't get me wrong. But instead of saying, you know, John, I don't think we should talk about that, Immediately, I knew I was in trouble when he would change the subject. When we talk along about something, maybe gossiping about someone in program, because we knew everybody, you know. Saying things that probably should be anonymity and staying there. Uh, one of the last things I want to get rid of is my gossiping. And I still work on that. I ask God to remove that on a daily basis. But that subtle way that he could change the subject or tell me or whatever, uh, or I would say, Gee, somebody's really having a real hard time. And he might say, yeah, you know, I have an awful hard time just taking care of myself. And just little things like that, you know. Not tough love, but he had, he had the right words at the right time. And I, I appreciate that. But anyway, I didn't use him uh, probably six months before he died like I should have. Because I knew he was dying. And uh, uh, I just didn't use him like I should have. And he couldn't travel and do things like he, that he did before. He was bed fast with a bone cancer, went down, all the bones broke in his body, and he lasted a lot longer than people thought he would. Real tough way to go. And just to show maybe what a sponsor can do for you, a good one, a good one now. It just happened on the day, uh, about four or five days before, just four or five days before he died. And this is known as a gutter drunk was only surviving by being shot full of morphine every day. And it bothered him some, I know. But he kept a pretty clear head about it. <coughs> there was, I think Dan, was it you and I just went up from Dayton? And there was a couple of guys came in from Milwaukee uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana is where we went. And there was a couple other people came in from another place. And we just hit them on the same day. We, we knew he was dying. We wanted to say goodbye. But that's how... Before, this man had reached out and helped people, right? But people would come in from that far away to hundreds of miles to drive. They wouldn't say goodbye and, you know, we love you. Uh, as we were all ready to leave and Dan and I were leaving, uh, I think Dan was going to say a little prayer. We all held hands and uh, we prayed for Tom, obviously. And after we were through, he looked up. Tom said a prayer for the rest of us to have a safe trip home. Now, that to me is appropriate. I guess I never shed any tears for you. 
filming out, and I'll try to make this short as I can. Bill ever says, 
ask God to remove it, or give it to God, tell another person, and you'll find out somebody that's worse off than you are and help them. That's the only advice he gives that I ever found reading the books uh, probably 50 times. I don't know how many times I've read them. I really don't know. Many, many. There was a one other thing missing. I had to find a good meeting to go to. I heard Carrie say that she went to Inglewood because she knew it was a good meeting. And I think that's fine. It's one of the older meetings that has a lot of people in it, and that's where she, she was able to get back in and get going again. I kind of come back here and look at St. Mark's. A meeting I had started on a Wednesday several years ago was not here. It was folded. A Monday meeting uh, I met with Bob. Bob's still here. Bob shared definitely. Anyway, Bob and I showed up upstairs, and there wasn't anybody here. The Monday night meeting had folded. There was no Saturday morning meeting here. Uh, the Friday morning meeting had about three people in it. I think you still right, Kathy? You were ready to fold that, right? Couldn't understand. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, and I said, Kathy, whoops, we just gave her a token for six six months of abstinence yesterday, I think it was, or Wednesday. Isn't that nice? Give her a hand. Bless her heart. place to go to a meeting and get my cup filled. And I know that one person can't do anything, but if you can get a half a dozen people, and this is what Bill says in his book on service, if you can get a half a dozen people interested in doing what you want to do, you can do anything. And I believe that. I believe that. I decided to come to these meetings, and my good friend Dan back here, he heard me harp enough over the years, we do a lot of fishing together and traveling, doing things together, that we got to get a Saturday morning meeting going for a speaker's meeting. We don't have one in Dayton. We need it. You know, it's recovery. You know why? Because you go there and you have to keep your mouth shut. You can't keep your mouth running all the time. That's why it's recovery. And you hear somebody speak, uh, and you, if you've been there a long time, then you realize where you were. And if you don't know if you're a compulsive overeater, you listen to two or three speakers, and you are convinced. That's why a speaker's meeting is so important. And we didn't even have one in the area. And I'm going to know Dan started up what, three or four months ago, and it's been standing in only ever since it started. I knew it, but I didn't have the courage to start it. Dan did it, and I think we ought to thank him for that, too. <laughs> Where five months ago, we had, well, I don't know about the Big Book meeting, I can't say. I don't think there was too many in that either. That was kind of a hit and miss, too, wasn't it, Mark? There for a while? Huh? More hit and miss than that. Yeah, it's fine now, but there was, excuse me, around Christmas time when you, because I came in here one time, you and I were the only ones here. Is that right? Okay. I'm not trying to put your meeting down. I know, it's a, I know that the big book meeting is a good meeting, and you're having good turnouts now, and I think that's wonderful. But we're in this building. We had maybe 10 people coming in in a week. There are 150 people coming in here now to meetings in a week's time. And we think we've got something to offer. I think they're good meetings. I believe they're the best meetings in town. Now, you're going to argue with me on that. If you go to another meeting, I realize that, and that's okay. You better think you belong to the best meeting in town. So i got a place where I can come and get my cup filled. And it also serves two more purposes. The meetings that are held here, this is our inner group office, pay the rent on the bookstore and pay over half the budget for the inner group out of those meetings. We didn't have that before. And that was the other thing. I'm going to talk about this, and then I'm going to get off and leave time for some sharing here. I told you I was a member of AA. And during the three years that I was not really active with service in program, I did go to meetings, but they were drop-ins, okay? I never considered leaving OA. That was never never consideration for me. I knew this was the only place for me. AA had about 110 meetings. When I looked at their new book, they had 220-some. They had doubled in about three or four years in their meetings. During that three years when I was not around, I saw our meetings in OA 
drop almost half. I saw half of our membership leave. I couldn't believe it. It totally blew my mind. What do we do wrong? Not right. We do a lot of things right. But why can they, why, why can they double their membership and we lose ours? Why do we have so many people come and don't stay? Brooks says over and over, and I know these are true figures, 75% of the people, 50% make it the first time in AA. Another 25% come. And another 25% are always better, even if they attend meetings, even though they're not dry. That's their statistics. The last ones I saw on OA, they claimed a 22% recovery weight. I don't know. I really don't know. I did see a new thing that it says 75% of the college graduates, you think we're too smart to work this program? I don't know. No, I, I only see one difference, and this is just my opinion. It, it, doesn't, mean a, it, it doesn't mean anything. I, I realize that. It's just mine. But they have a built-in discipline in their meetings that ensures anonymity. It ensures that nobody is above anyone else. And when they have discussion meetings, their leaders do not discuss. They simply throw out a simple topic and let it lay. I find so much in the OA program that we want to talk it to death. That when people read things out of books, and I know this for a fact, that the retention rate when you read somebody for the people you're reading it to is less than 30 seconds. So the only people getting anything out of that is the person that's reading the whatever it is. Uh, I have never seen anything read in an AA meeting other than something out of a step book in a big book. They have no format that I've ever been to in any meetings I go to other than they open with the steps or how it works and the traditions, ask for announcements, and immediately go into their discussion meeting or their speaker meeting or whatever it is. I don't know if that's a difference or not, guys, but I'm concerned about it. And I realize I can't say, well, you're try to or anything, but I would really like to know that difference. Because, you know, if I don't, I'm going to die. I'm going to weigh 450 pounds. don't know if I could ever get up there again. I'd probably be dead before I got there. My heart would give up. <coughs> Some of the things my sponsor used to tell me in a very gentle way, to analyze is to paralyze. Nobody's too dumb to work the program, but it sure is a lot of people too smart. And last, get the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth and listen, which I always thought was pretty good advice. I think he was pretty smart and a lovely man. And I have a good sponsor today. We have a. Anytime that I get in a little bit of trouble, I don't necessarily go to it and see what it is. We go to it and talk about spirituality, about our belief in God. And after about 30 minutes of that, I'm back on the right track again. I'm all right. And I know to do that today. And if I do have something that's bothering me, I get turned over right away. I want to ask one question. I wasn't going to do this. And I'll tell you, last night I was up almost all night thinking about this. I want to know, what could I say? What could I say that maybe would help someone else? All I can do is just share my experiences. Uh, I really can't tell anybody what to do, how to do, or anything else. That's not my job. But how many people would like to see a one-hour meeting using an AA format in a discussion meeting? Now, we've got a, a step meeting going on Wednesday that, that again, is, is very well attended. I think we've had around 30 people in that. I've never seen that many people in a step meeting in my life. On a Wednesday afternoon, they're coming. But it is AA format. Everybody gets an equal chance. We go around the table, and everybody, everybody's equal. And that, that ensures anonymity, because there's nobody above anybody else. There's no leaders. But uh, is there anyone in this group that would like to see a discussion meeting going with a one-hour format using AA where everybody is equal? Is there anybody? Just show a hand. Does anybody feel like they'd like to see a meeting like that? Why don't we have one? I don't know of them. Where? There you go. See, I don't know about them. And Friday. There you go. I, on Friday afternoon, right? That's, we should announce that. 
Friday afternoon, a one-hour discussion meeting where everybody gets a chance to talk and nobody's above anybody else, right? There you go. I think that's where the program is. I don't know. If I knew anything, I wouldn't be here. And with that, uh, I would like to open this up for sharing now for a while. Anybody can talk, you can tell me how crazy I am or anything you want to do. It's okay with me. Sherry and a compulsive overeater and bulimic and slowly, gratefully recovering and very happy to be here. I can't tell you, I am ecstatic to see this turnout. I am ecstatic. I am emotional about this. This is wonderful. This is my sixth year in program 